welcome to the bullpen session. This is Patrick Lillis, and uh, this episode, this week, we're talking with one of my favorite people, Carrie O'Malley, great actor, great actor in all aspects. We were talking about uh, that in our conversation. She's, you know, on Broadway, plays, musicals, film, television, and uh, it was nice to talk to her about how intentional she is about doing all those things, but really it was just nice to talk to her because uh, she lives in L.A. and I don't get to see her very often, and I was happy for the opportunity to talk, and during it, I was just reminded, I mean, I love Carrie because she's incredibly talented and an avid sports fan. She is from New Hampshire, so she was ingrained in her to root for the Boston sports teams, which I actually is one of the very few people that I truly respect who does that. I was about to make some joke about that, but the truth is uh, her passion for her teams is so sincere that it is lovely. And it makes me, has gotten me to respect those teams a little bit, or at least some of the greatness that's happened in the past decade or two. And we talked, I think we talked afterwards. I don't think a lot of that's in the conversation about Tom Brady and where that's going, but it was, uh, it was so great to talk to her. And, um, and the other thing that I wanted to talk to her about is she's also very serious about the business and approaches it in a very intentional way. And one of the things we talked about was financial literacy and how important that is for artists to have. And I, I think it's interesting because I think about it, you know, where I think artists get a bad rap around money. And I think we're amazing at managing our money because we're able to survive on, I want to say it doesn't have to be less than, it doesn't have to be uh, not enough. What it what it is on is unpredictability and inconsistency because sometimes you're, you know, you're on a show or you're working on something and there's a consistent paycheck and then there's periods in between projects and, you know, like a lot of small businesses and freelance artists, uh, freelance workers of all sorts. But I, I think we're really good at, thinking about how to manage our money. And then it was interesting in the conversation with Carrie to talk about uh, financial planning. It just, it's part of the conversation. I mean, you're going to also talk about the revival of 1776 she's in and other things, but that part really got me because I was thinking as a freelance artist, the pandemic's been financially challenging on the industry because people don't know what they're doing. And I will say, but for me, for the first time in 20 years, I qualified because of the pandemic insurance for unemployment, because usually I'm, you know, like most of us freelance worker on 1099, you know, and um, I was thinking about what that, what that little bit of money does, you know, and it, it creates just enough space to think about the future and to make a plan and think about a plan for when this is over and what do you want to do? And, and also to be strategic in thinking about how to move your career forward during this time. And, you know, I think this time is confusing because we don't know what it's going to look like. But I did think that that's, you know, I want to say something that's like really just, just grateful that that is available uh, and that it, you know, it took a while and people, like anybody online has applied for it is, we'll talk about how frustrating the bureaucratic system is, but, you know, it's because millions, tens of millions of people are out of work right now. And I'm hoping it's temporary for all of us and I'm hoping that things change, but it was the other thing that made it possible to think about what's next is having a plan going into this uh, when this was happening. And I was thinking it was just, it was a nice reminder as Carrie talked about the reality of that part of the business is it is a reality. And for us to, in this pause, not sure I like that phrase because I think most of us are still moving forward and working, but in the pause that is happening in the industry, 
is to really be strategic, you know, strategic about how you're going to re-enter, how we're going to re-make a living, how we're going to get paid for what we do and what we earn, how the early career artist is going to take that first step into an industry that's shifting its financial model, if not permanently, temporarily for certain. And um, I just think there's a lot of things to think about in that. And, and it's an opportunity, a positive opportunity for us to plan and say, what do I want to do? How do I want to go about this? How can I stabilize this so that I can continue to do it for a long time? Because that's the other thing talking to Carrie that I was appreciated is, you know, you're going to do it for a long time. So you want to be able to support yourself and create a, a way to be able to pursue the work you want to do. So that's what I'm, you know, that was one of the things that struck me in the conversation. Also something I'm just thinking about because I'm aware that, you know, I don't know what's next. I know that uh, I've watched a lot of Zoom theater and it's starting to become more like Zoom film because it is edited and not necessarily live. And, and, and I'm not sure... Well, I don't want to focus on the monetary structure, but I'm not sure how people are going to get paid to do that. But at the same time, the way we make a living is by sharing our art and sharing our art intentionally and having something to say and having something that resonates with us and that we need to communicate. And for us just to be, just to allow ourselves to take this time to think like, what do I have to say? And where and how will it be valuable in being received? And I think, you know, a lot of organizations are thinking strategically like, right now. And I think it's a good opportunity for us to, and in doing that work to also take the time to do the things that we love and enjoy. And I hope they come back. Some of them like sports, you know, talking to Carrie was also nice to just remind myself of that shared passion and, uh, you know, hoping that comes back to watch because uh, we also need a break every now and then from the work that we do. But, uh, but the conversation was great. You'll get to hear, I think, right at the beginning, Shenandoah University, which I know I've talked about before as a guest artist, that they did an all-female version of 1776. And Carrie is in the Broadway-bound revival of 1776. That is, I believe, all-female also. And she talks about the process of workshopping that and, and what the goals are and, and what the hopes of the next step for that project are. So I think that's where our conversation starts off. And with that, play ball. One of the questions was, how, how is it to rehearse a musical on Zoom? How did that workshop work? Well, it was mostly table work and research and like dramaturgy stuff. We weren't actually rehearsing. You know, we read through the show, which is challenging on Zoom because, you know, in a good Zoom meeting, everybody's muted and you only unmute your microphone when you're speaking. And then um, it's challenging because people are at home. Not everybody has an office or a room that they can set aside for rehearsal. People have children, people have spouses they're living with, you know, so there's the, there's the sound issue. So you want people muted, but then sometimes you're doing your scene and you're going like, you know, and people are like, unmute yourself, unmute yourself. <laughs> so that's not ideal. So we did a good read through of the show and, uh, and that was great, but mostly the, the two weeks were spent, um, we had history professors, which was heaven for me, heaven. So we had talks about the Declaration, talks about the Atlantic slave trade, talks about, you know, the economy of the time, uh, and and a real sort of deep dive into Diane Paulus's way into the show and what inspires her, or what she wants to bring out in the story. We talked about, we had great design presentations, 
you know, talked about the costume shows, saw the lookbooks, saw the a slideshow of the model of the set. So all the kind of stuff that gets rushed in rehearsal, yeah. you know, you can do all that stuff in a day. We had two weeks to do it. And, um, and to really just talk about the actors' experiences as Americans and uh, what liberty, freedom means to us or how it is how it is represented in our lives today and how it, that is all affected by, you know, what's like the original sin of the country and slavery and that this slavery clause was cut from the declaration. So that's, um, and because that's really the event of the play. Yeah. They tried to get this in and then got cut and why and what that means and this. Um, so that, that was mainly what we did. It's hard to rehearse over Zoom. You know, you can't, I think we thought they sent out a, um, uh, like a questionnaire beforehand. Do you have do you have space to move? Do you have um, so like we made a little studio in the bedroom? I thought, okay, we're gonna maybe even learn some choreography. Well, that's that's not <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was really ambitious. <laughs> and then, like people have different internet speeds, and then we had there was a period during the um, rehearsal where there were very very bad windstorms in um, certain parts of the country, so people were having you know uh, their internet was getting knocked out. So it you know it's not ideal for. Uh, creativity it is yeah. a great way to get to know people though yeah we did you know i did at shenandoah i was directing a play and then we did the last two weeks so we presented blight spirit on zoom and then they did the college collab of the farm play on zoom and i i was very happy to find the theatrical things you could do like passing a martini into the you know from one person <laughs> to the other but uh but it's great for table work that's the value of it and yes. very very funny as i I, I thought about, yeah, I can only imagine how great that was for you because I don't know anybody who enjoys research more than Love it so much. I love it so much. <laughs> and, well, I, guess, you know, I had a stack. I'll send you a picture of my little setup because I had, a, I had like all of my American Revolution books next to me. So like if something came up, I could go, oh, yes, I know the answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, don't, I don't need to go too deep into 1776, but it is kind of, you're playing the great part. Oh, of, so, such uh, a great part. John Dickinson for those yeah. who don't. Yeah. And, and, you know, and it's interesting because the slavery is part of it, but also Dickinson gets the great moment of, I think, speaking not against it for, I think the reason you're playing the part, but speaking against it because of the, the belief that they'll lose. Yes, yes. <laughs> and what's, what's, hard about, what's hard about playing Dickinson is that you know, he was a patriot. He was absolutely a patriot. He's known as the penman of the revolution. He, um, but he did not want to fight a war unprepared. And so he's the guy who wrote the Olive Branch petition. He, um, you know, he was definitely a patriot. He then fought in the militia. So it's not like the guy thinks we should remain with Britain. So you have to put forth the argument of we should separate, but we shouldn't separate this way. And what's hard about it is when you love the show as much as I do, and it's my favorite show. I love, 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 love this show. What's really kind of heartbreaking for me is I don't get to be in that moment of signing it at the end. You know, when the bells clang and it's this historic moment and I'll be backstage. <laughs> I mean, I assume so. I, she hasn't staged it yet, so who knows what she does with me. But I do, I will. I thought, oh boy, if like the big production photo from the show is the people signing the declaration, I won't be in it. So. But <laughs> yes, but you will have caused them to do it 
with a deeper yes. understanding of what they're doing. Yes. <laughs> it's crucial that John Adams has a great adversary and I am up to the challenge. Yeah, it was fun to to look just to look when I saw what part you were playing. It's actually I am it's one of my it's definitely the first musical I knew and it's my one of my favorite shows. I like to call it the OG Hamilton. Exactly. You know, because yeah. uh, it was the first to make us look at history in the way that it does. Yeah. But yes, and it's funny you don't get that moment because I was thinking I went out to Paper Mill and saw you when you did it there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you didn't get to sign it then either. No, I didn't. But I was, you know, married to the guy who started it all. <laughs> yeah, there was some. You get that great commitment speech, you know. That's such a great moment, and you get to you get to send the saltpeter and have the great song and have all the romance. Oh, it's so good! I love the show so much. I mean, I think I don't know if I told you this when I did it before, but when I was a kid, I I had a whole alternate set of lyrics to the Lees of Old Virginia, which was my name is Carrie O'Malley, Nashua is my home. So I don't remember anything more than the title, but I really have a whole song written for that. That is great. Um, I, I, well, I'll get the whole song at some point. I, uh, <laughs> how do you keep in shape? Well, I mean, um, not not physical exercise. I think no, that's no, doing, but but vocally and everything. Well, I sing every day. That I do. I, I vocalize. Um, I will go to my car so I don't bother my neighbors and I'll, I'll vocalize in my car. I've actually been acting a lot during this quarantine. Like I've had auditions, usually on camera. So um, I feel like I've been memorizing something at least three times a week. Then I recently, um, I, do, I participate in a cabaret about it happens once a month and I probably do it maybe five times a year and sing you know, three songs and we're doing a virtual one this coming Sunday. So I've had, I've been recording those songs, which of course is challenging because when you do cabaret, it's like you do it live, it exists and then it disappears. But when you do it on camera and it goes on the internet, it's forever. So there's a higher bar of satisfaction with your work. So uh, that's hard. That's hard. I'm used to that in, TV and film, and I'm very, um, I'm very at peace with that. But suddenly, singing in your own room at home with the li microphone and doing it on the, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, we're in sort of a brave new world of having to be lighting designers, you know, um, uh, uh, camera operators, sound operators, uh, computer operators. Like we have to have all these new skills to exist in this world and look good at what we're doing. Yeah. And now everybody's doing these benefits, like, hey, just sing the song from home. Well, just singing the song from home is not that easy. So that has been um, very challenging. And, uh, but, you know, new skills. I will say my husband, Carl, he's the one doing all of that stuff. Like, he's my tech director. He's brilliant. And I would be, uh, I'd probably be saying no to a lot of things right now if I didn't have him to help me navigate my way through it. I mean... Like with voiceover now, all the voiceover auditions, they're saying, you know, we can't, we can't book you if you don't have a home studio. And not just like a home booth where you do, do your auditions, but a home studio with, a, with either an ISDN connection or you're, you pay for Source Connect, which is 40 bucks a month or whatever. So it's a, everything is, we're just in a, a sea change moment that is challenging on top of all the other challenges. So um, that's yeah. difficult. 
difficult and, and, and exhausting. And we're all on Zoom all day long and it's exhausting. It's exhausting. Well, and the Zoom is, I think people don't understand that it doesn't, you don't get the same, you're not getting energy back. No. You know, and you have to engage with it almost. What I learned watching, working with students in the acting part of it is like, you're not even responding to the screen because that doesn't, that's not right. So you're, you're looking at a camera without another camera person in the room or another actor in the room. And mm -hmm. it's exhausting. But then the other thing is, I'm not sure if the voiceover stuff is because they've learned they can do it. I don't know if it'll come back to not being you being totally responsible. I don't think it will because that had already happened in the business. You know, when I was living in New York, I left New York in 2012. And when I was living in New York, we were, we had already gone through the change of going to audition mostly at our agents in their booth versus going to casting directors. And then there was this wipeout of voiceover casting directors, just complete loss of jobs. So then now you do almost all of your auditions from home. And then you would, you would do the recording in a studio. Forget it. That's gone. We're all going to be recording from home now. And if you don't have a home studio, you're not going to book. Yeah, you're not going to be in it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump to the 2012. What, what made you move? So uh, a couple of things. The main one being that I met my husband, Carl, in 2011 in L.A. He works in film and television um, as a police and medical technical advisor. And... Uh, and I knew that I wanted to, you know, stay with him. And then it was like, well, where are we going to live? And I had already done a ton of TV and film. And I thought, well, you know, I'd pretty much been bi-coastal. And I thought, well, if I work in both places, it doesn't really matter where I'm based. So moving to LA felt like the right time. I had also just finished um, uh, doing On a Clear Day, You Can See Forever on Broadway, which had a, a pretty short run. And I'd had multiple many years long experiences of developing new shows that then finally went forward and either failed quickly or went forward with a name attached instead of me. And that just uh, became unsustainable. And so I just said, you know what, I'm going to go and create new work. You know, I want, I don't want to be doing endless revivals. Oh, of course I, I love, say that I'm doing 17 <laughs> I mean, I love, I love shows, but the hard thing about revivals is that you're endlessly compared to the person who created it. And I just, I, I want a chance to be seen for who I am instead of who I am not, you know, like not Joanna Gleason, not Bernadette Peters, not Ethel Merman, not Mary Martin, you know, whatever, all those people. So at least in television, and it's like a golden age of television writing. I'm creating new characters. I, they, they come from me. So that's exciting to me. And then I figured, well, and if I want to continue doing Broadway musicals in the kind of roles that I'm right for that, I, um, that interest me, I'm going to have to have some name cred to go with it to get cast as them. So might as well focus on film and TV. And that, but that was the choice. Did you, was, was the choice? I remember actually talking to you. I remember you saying that about the revival and the new work. And were you thinking about film and television as the fact? Because I think that's something people lose track of is that television and film 99% of the time are new, are new, you know, yeah. they're original. And yeah, I, and I was doing really interesting work on TV. I mean, I had recurred on Boardwalk Empire, I recurred on Teamless. I, uh, 
I record on Brotherhood. I was doing like really high quality cable TV shows um, and just working for great writers and great actors. And I thought, you know, this is, I'm not doing schlocky work, you know? Why not go where the great writing is? The great writers are going to television. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, some of them, thank God, still write for theater, but when they do plays, they do them with TV stars. <laughs> so, <laughs> or movie stars, you know, and that's movie stars. And everything, like, I mean, everything starts to, as, as TV becomes kind of king, then movie stars start, start doing TV, and then the TV stars get pushed into the recurring roles, and then the recurring people get pushed down to the guest stars, and then the guest stars just stop working, and then there's no jobs for theater people be, unless, you know, you're in the ensemble and you're, um, you're not playing the roles that you should be playing, so. It's hard. It's just hard. There's just so many people all fighting for the same stuff. It, it is. I think, well, that's the truth. I mean, I think we're all fighting for the same stuff. I, I think one of the things about the, not to talk about the self-isolation too much, but one of the things is that it eliminated everything for everybody. Yeah. And then now everybody's, if there's any opportunity, you, you can think, well, oh, who do I want to talk to? Well, they're free. I'll get that person, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And, but what's it? is that that we we think that but then you talked like I have friends who are you know reg, Broadway regulars were in shows and now they're home with two kids homeschooling losing their minds exhausted they don't have time to be doing creative wonderful you know home videos uh, you know creating new work on zoom like they're trying to just survive yeah and so I think that, that for those, I mean, I don't have children, so I'm so lucky that I have the kind of time where I can do things like record three songs and it takes a few days, or I can, you know, record a sonnet for somebody, or I did a, a Shakespeare monologue for Commonwealth Shakespeare yesterday, and, you know, that I can participate in these sort of things. But some of my other friends who are just, like, desperately trying to get through a day, they can't do that. So it, it's, it's, it's going to eliminate certain people from the business who can't just... They can't, you know, out of sight, out of mind, right? So if they're not creating new work and being seen and being seen and get like a whole bunch of people will have big careers after this because they did something innovative, fun, crazy new online that got people to pay attention. And then the other people will fall away because they didn't. And that's just gonna be, I mean, look at somebody like Randy Rainbow, who's making these incredible videos. They're incredible. Like, they're incredible and so fast. Like he did the one about... The the um, the bleach. Yes, the bleach. The, the the Mary Poppins one. So fast, I couldn't believe how fast he did. It. And the production values are just brilliant. But like, not everyone's going to be able to do that. And the people who do do it, they're going to have amazing careers and things happen for them because of their ingenuity and their creativity. And then other people are just like, I got to I'm just trying to get a shower. You know. <laughs> well, you know, and I want to be optimistic and say like, they're going to get a jump start when things yeah. normalize you know, you're still going to have opportunities for work, but these people are going to get shot out of a gate. Like, I don't know if Randy Rainbow would have been in the Sondheim 90th if uh, he wasn't generating all of those videos, you know. Yeah. And, and casting directors will tell you, you know, uh, they, that they're getting instructions from above to, you know, get people who have social media followers, get people with a big Instagram following, get people with social media cred, you know? And uh, again, it's just a brave new world and it's uh, sink or swim for a lot of us. And I, what I worry about is that, and especially in theater, to 
have a successful career in theater, you need to be constantly working on new work, doing readings, doing workshops, doing, um, you know, Monday night concerts, all these things, very few of which pay. And many, many people will be coming out of this uh, pandemic severely in debt, deeply struggling, won't be able to afford the time to do those kinds of things and won't be able to commit to doing a workshop of something for, you know, a 29-hour reading for $100, a four-week workshop for $300 a week, a letter of agreement contract. They just won't have the money. They're going to be like, you know what, I got to go work for Amazon. Like, it's just, it's just going to be very, very, very difficult for people. It is going to be, and it's something I didn't think about when you were just saying that is like one of the things for early career artists is to show up to those readings, yes. right? So you're not in it, but you show up and you talk to people and you get to know people. And I'm, I'm like, oh, where's the opportunity to build community? You know, yeah. you almost, you can build awareness by posting things, but if somebody doesn't, they don't know you or I, how do we see them? How do we get to know them? And yeah. You know, all of a sudden you're like, what are you doing right now? Networking by following people on Instagram? <laughs> yeah. Know. Like I, I usually, when I go talk to students, one of the things that I always tell them is when I did um, How I Learned to Drive in 1997. So that, that was the original cast and it won every major award. It won the Pulitzer, it won the Obie, it won the Drama Desk, it won the Outer Critics Circle. It won, I mean, it was just, it was, it was such a massive success. But we started at, the Vineyard, I believe it was a letter of agreement contract, but it might have been called something different then. My take-home pay at the Vineyard was $187 a week. And then we went to a commercial production across the street at the Century Theater, which is no longer a, a theatrical space. And my take-home pay was $324 a week. Now, my rent was $1,200. So after I paid my rent, I still had to eat. I still had to pay for my cell phone. I still had to pay for food. I still had to pay for Subway to get to work. You know, all of those things, none of which were covered by my salary. And we were the biggest off-Broadway hit of the season. We were a universally acclaimed show. So I was hustling like crazy. I did every, every demo, every workshop, every reading. I was just, and, and auditioning for voiceover nonstop. And if, had I been in a situation where I was deeply in debt because of just coming off of three months of no work for, uh, because of a pandemic, there's no way I could, I wouldn't even have auditioned for that job. I would have thought $187 a week. You've got to be kidding me. Right. So, I can't afford it. And that's a, and that's a paying job. Yes. And that's a job. So that, uh, um, you know, I always talked about, talk about this with students. Um, whenever I get asked to talk to students is like financial literacy and learning how to manage your money, learning how to live within your means, all of these things are as crucial to success as an actor as anything else, if not more. I am gonna ask about that. When did you think, when did you learn that? Is that my, that That's from childhood. So um, my, my dad really instilled values about money in the family and about learning how to budget learning how to, um, you know, really sat down. I remember when I went to college and he sat down with me and we opened up a bank account and said, this is how a checking account works. This is how you balance your checkbook. This is how you, uh, you know, uh, what's the word for it um, with your statement when you, um, not rectify, I can't think of the word. When you look at your statement and you make sure everything matches, these are the fees you can expect so you don't get surprised by them. This is how credit card interest works. This is how if you buy something and don't pay for it for many, many months, this is how the interest accrues and how much you're really paying for it. Then he, 
he had me set up an IRA when I was 20 years old. So, and then when I, when I booked my first TV series, we just said, okay, you're going to live off of the, um, the relocation fee and you're going to put everything else in the bank. And that has held me in good stead because that just, you know, accrued over time and, and got me through some really, really lean times. And then also taught me, you know, like pay yourself first, like just automatically save 10% of every paycheck. You get a hundred dollars, you know, so you save 10% of that. So those things really made a difference. And, uh, and, and I think that I just, I have just encountered so many young people who are getting out of college with absolutely staggering amounts of student debt. I, I like, it makes me, it hurts my heart to think about how much debt people yeah. are coming out of, to enter a profession that has very little work and very little good paying work. And I, and I just think, and they don't even know how interest works. They don't know how interest accrues. They don't know. And, and, and they, have very little prospects of ever paying it down, you know, like just waiting for a miracle of like something happening where that will disappear. I, and I forget about what rent costs in New York living, yeah. just living. It's just crazy. So I don't know. I think it's, I think I, if I were running a college program, I would have, I think that it's just as important to take a stagecraft class and acting and voice and movement. It's also just as important to teach people financial literacy, basic financial literacy. I think the financial literature, it's interesting because I agree and I am, I am one of the people who was not good about it. I mean, I managed my budget and survived and I'm still alive, so I did great. Um, but, uh, but, but when I started the farm, we did a couple of years in, we started this uh, financial workshop for artists and it was just, it was, it was great except for, you know, four people came. And it's one of those things where you go, it's hard to teach somebody like, listen, you're going to do this for a very long time. Yeah. And if you want to do this for a long time, start now, you'll be better off, you know, yeah. Yeah. And, you'll, and you'll be able to do it longer. Yeah, I, I feel like, and what I always say to students is, if you don't, if you don't take control of your money and you get into trouble, you will despair. And if you despair, you will quit. And that this is a war of attrition. People fall away in the business because they either, um, get their hearts broken and can't recover or they they feel despair because they feel like they can never ever get ahead and make a living or they just think you know what doing something else is just easier i want to have a nice life i want to live in a place that's not you know roach infested and i want to be a grown-up and not have roommates you know like all those things that come in and and despair creeps in and you give up but if you learn how to live within your means and be smart about your money that you are less like less likely to despair because things will come along that are going to make you despair. You know, <laughs> you'll get a divorce, you'll you'll uh, you'll lose a parent, you'll lose a sibling, you'll lose a job that you really really thought would change your life. Any of those things that will break your heart. And if you have also just a huge weight of financial trouble on top of it, you're more likely to give up. And and the people who don't give up, you know, they're the ones who are still working. Yeah, and you have to stay in it. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm thinking about that and going, I want to ask, do you think was how I learned to drive had to have been the, I'm making an assumption and I want to ask the question, but <laughs> I was going to say, what do, you, what do you think happened for you that took you to a next level? What event or who helped that got you to a next level in your career where you 
and I don't, I, I like to just ask it and not say what is the next level you define that, but yeah. I'm thinking about early on and how did it happen? Um, I, I honestly, I, I think you'd have to ask casting people about how, when they thought, uh, no one knew how I learned to drive was going to be what it was. I mean, Certainly Doug Abel at the Vineyard knew it was a great play. Certainly Mark Brokaw knew it was a great play, but I don't think anyone thought it would be this sort of cult cultural touchstone that it was. So that was unexpected. No one thought it was gonna run for a year. No one, you know, we just, we would sort of struck lightning. I also, when that show opened, I also played Fran in Promises, Promises at Encores. I was reviewed in the Times twice in one week in two shows. So I think we opened How I Learned to Drive maybe on like a Sunday. And then we did the dress rehearsal for Promises, Promises on like a Wednesday. So something like that. And then um, Danielle Furland stepped in for a week for me um, in How I Learned to Drive. And so I think it was this sort of double whammy of both those shows were very high profile and very different. So, oh, she does plays and she does musicals. You know, that that, that helped. And then because of the of Promises, Promises, I got to do a... Um, a workshop of a Burt Bacharach uh, sort of jukebox musical for the roundabout. So those three things happened at the same time. Um, I had already made my Broadway debut. I had already been on Broadway twice. Uh, I had done Cyrano the musical and I had done translations, um, but translations as an understudy and Cyrano as ensemble. So, um, I think the net, the, but certainly Promises, Promises and, and How I Learned to Drive. And then I did um, Annie Get Your Gun on Broadway. I was a replacement in that. And I played Joe March in the workshop of Little Women. So all of those things led up to, um, I think Little Women was before Into the Woods, but maybe I made that up. So Into the Woods was 2003. I can't remember the dates for, um, but they all sort of happened at the same time. So that was when it, um, I just got, I just got really lucky that uh, things were happening simultaneously. Like you get a little bit of heat on you and, um, and it worked. And then I was lucky enough to get some TV stuff at the same time. So I was working in multiple media and, and then not letting myself get boxed into one thing. And I really, that was a very conscious choice. Like I said to my agents, if I do a musical, I want to do a play next. If I do a period show, I want to do a, a contemporary show next. If I do a comedy, I want to do a drama next. So I was very, very um, conscious about those choices. When, it, I, which is funny, because that's one of the things that I know about you is that you've, you know, and, and as long as I've known you, you've done everything. Um, yeah. How did, at what, how confident were you when you had your early agent relationship to be able to say that, to say, this is the path I wanted to, this is what I want to make sure I'm doing. Right off the bat, first meeting, first meeting. Um, I, mainly because I just, I just gotten out of grad school. I went to ART, um, the Institute at, at Harvard. And so I had, I felt really comfortable in multiple genres. We had done, you know, I had done Greek drama. I had done Moliere. I had done contemporary. I had, and I, and I sang. And I was very comfortable with Shakespeare. I was comfortable, um, you know, I just felt like I was full of confidence and like exuberance and, and feeling fluency in multiple genres. The only thing I, I felt like I don't do well is I don't really dance. I don't dance. 
I can dance enough to be the lead and like, you know, you sing the song and people dance around you and you do a few steps. <laughs> that's my, that's my first, I, I dance well enough to be a lead, but not well enough to be in the chorus. So, um, <laughs> but, um, but the roles I want to play generally are not in big dance shows. So that's, you know, fine. Otherwise I would have maybe put more time into it, but I, um, but I, I felt really, um, I'd had great undergraduate tra- training. I went to Duke and, and then two years of grad school where I felt like I got to like shed a little bit of the look of training. Like I got to feel sort of more comfortable in my skills, let the, let the training sort of not show as much. And then, uh, and then I just felt like ready and raring and like, I can do everything. I don't think that anymore. <laughs> you know, like now, now I'll read things and I'll say, that's not for me. You know, that's not my wheelhouse. I, I, I feel like I have a much, uh, much more circumscribed wheelhouse than I did when I was in my twenties. And so, um, but that's, but that's good. I think that's a strength. Yeah. Why, why? It's so funny. I'm not surprised you went to ART. I mean, I knew that, but what motivated that? Because it is not something that I think of when I'm going to do Into the Woods on Broadway. Oh, I should go to, at the time when you went to ART, I wouldn't have thought that. Now I would think that. Now I would think you'd do an exciting production of 1776 if you went to ART. But but I wouldn't have thought that then. Well, I, um, well, of course, ART is different from when I went there. Um, you know, Diane Paulus's ART is very different from Robert Brewstein's ART. I, so I went there because of Robert Brewstein and Robert Brewstein had um, been my teacher's teacher. So I was learning um, uh, directing under Jody McAuliffe. She was the Yale drama grad. And so, and we read a lot of Brewstein's stuff. So I started to get into a real deep dive of Robert Brewstein's criticism and his aesthetic. I was very inspired by that and I said I want to go where he is. And the idea of ART at the time, it was a it was a rotating rep company. So they had a company and you could see them in a different show three different times a week. So it was just incredible, an incredible place to be because you could watch somebody again do Shaw one night Shakespeare the next night, and then Pinter the next night. And watching these actors shapeshift was just so, it was, the, it was the greatest kind of training you could see because you just saw how, how they were thrown into a new thing and just had to um, adapt. And their creativity was so on fire, just uh, thrilling to watch. And so, and, and, and Brewstein used to say, you know, the theater is the teacher. You know, we don't have a master teacher. We don't have a master style. The theater is the teacher. So, and when I was there, oh my God, um, Ron Daniels directed um, Mark Rylance as Hamlet. And it was in rep with the seagull. So uh, Triborn was Hamlet and Constantine was uh, Claudius and Gertrude was Arcadna and Nina was um, Ophelia. And watching those two back and forth, you know, night after night, just the, the all the different things that came out in the play were so incredible. And um, and I was like, I, I, we used to have a class every Friday called Repertory as an Ideal that Robert Brewstein taught. And I still sort of believe repertory is the ideal, that you see the same company playing multiple roles and that the, and if you choose your season correctly, that each play will bring out something in the other play. Watching the seagull and 
happening in, in the same week is really illuminating. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. And did you go right from there to New York? Yeah, so my first audition, we went to New York, we did our showcase, and while we were there for the showcase, I had my first audition, it was for the ensemble of Cyrano, and I booked it. So my first audition was for show, and I booked it. And everyone kept saying, it's not going to be like this. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember it, I remember it very vividly because I wore the same outfit as I did to my showcase for this audition, and my parents were in town, and they waited outside, it was, um, it was at, uh, um, that studio that used to be on um, like 50s, maybe like 58th and 8th or something like that. And there was a McDonald's like kitty corner and they sat in the, in the McDonald's uh, on the benches waiting for me while I did my audition. And I came out, I'm like, I'm going to book that. <laughs> <laughs> and I did. So. <laughs> yeah, and it worked. Yeah. And that, and what was nice is that, um, I had a season at the Georgia Shakespeare Festival for the summer. I was playing, um, what did I do that season? I played, uh, I played Roxanne and Cyrano, and I played, uh, I think if this was the season, I did Bianca in a, a musical, um, Taming of the Shrew, that was set like Palm Beach in the 30s, it was fabulous. And then I, I think, I did a few seasons there, so I might be mixing them, them up, but I think that was the season I did Elizabeth and Richard the Third, and Shrew and um, uh, Roxanne. And so I, I, crazy that I got to do the play of Cyrano right before doing the musical. So I had work all through the summer, and then I moved to New York, and I, and my first sublet was at the choreographer for um, the music, through the musical. Um, at her place, so I had a place to go to, and then I uh, went straight into rehearsal for Cyrano and opened on Broadway that December. So it was a nice launch out of school, and you can't really have ever launched. Very spoiled, incredibly spoiled. <laughs> <laughs> but now, yeah, I'll say incredibly. There's a little bit of luck involved, but there's also the skill of having done done the work to be ready. I mean, that's one thing. It's yeah, interesting. Luck. There's there's luck and opportunity and all that, and preparedness and how that happened. I left Cyrano. I left Cyrano early to go do a tour of Ireland and Northern Ireland with the O'Casey Theatre Company in Plough in the Stars, directed by Siobhan O'Casey, Sean's daughter. And I, so I, I did, I did Shakespeare, a musical, Rostan, a Broadway musical, and then a, a Sean O'Casey play all in a year. That's, that's confusing to people. They're like, whoa, what did she do? <laughs> It, yeah, it's, well, it is, it's not confusing. One of the questions that a student had that I thought was interesting was, and I, I like that you control it. I, I did it different. I just going to, you know, I did it a little differently in the sense that I was like, I assisted on a Shakespeare and then I'd go direct a Shakespeare, you know, yeah. I'd assist a new play and then I'd go direct a new play. You know, I assisted on a musical, direct a musical and like immediately, like, what did I learn? Find an opportunity to apply as opposed yeah. to keep the variety going, but the same idea and wanting to do everything. And um, one of the things I, I asked a couple of the students just to send me questions because, because otherwise we talk baseball the whole time and, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I thought I should keep it on the topic. But one of them was how do you now at, at this point it's different because I think you're you're you know, you're more established than the first year you came out, boom. But how do you navigate 
auditioning and when there's not a pandemic and managing being able to do something like 1776, a long run and staying active in other things? It was, uh, well, the choice to do 1776 was actually extremely difficult because it, um, at the time, it was a year and a half commitment. Obviously that's changed now because, you know, uh, ART was canceled, the Amundsen was canceled. I'm assuming that the tour part will be, um, if not canceled, different. And then uh, we can hope that we go to Broadway at this point, but um, you know, none of us knows what's gonna happen. None of us knows when it's gonna be safe to go back to mass greet, uh, grouping some people. So, but at the time when I was offered the job, it was a very, very difficult decision to make because it is a severe pay cut from television work. And even though it's a very long job, it takes me away from my home. So I have to cover two rents and then I have to, and then I, uh, it, it asks a very large sacrifice of my husband because if he comes with me, then he can't do his work. And if he doesn't come with me, then it's very tough on us. And, um, you know, we have two cars, we have uh, uh, an apartment, we have, it, it's, it's a long time away from home. So um, I was leaning toward not doing it. And then, you know, some people will say, you should like throw a ball in the air when you're making the decision. And if you're okay with the ball dropping, then you know you've made the right decision. And if your heart goes, I'm not gonna catch it, then you know you've gotta do it. And I was not prepared to see someone else play that part. I just thought, I, it, I, it's my favorite show. I have to do it. I just, I have to make this work. So um, it was, uh, it, it was, it was tough because you just, you, you know, television is where I make my living and theater is almost at this point a, um, it's a luxury to get to do theater. And you would think that a year and a half of work is like, oh my God, that's amazing. But it's not, it, it's not, uh, it's regional theater. It's a, it's a CETA tour. And then it's another regional theater on Broadway and regional pay. So it's a, it's a hard gig to do a long time. Yeah. It's different. I mean, it's different if you're 25, you know, yeah. then it's then when you've built a whole life after yeah, a while. Exactly. exactly. What do I, so I was thinking I'm going to have, I'm going to, I will have to give up my apartment. I will put all my things in storage. I will, have to sell a car, you know, like I can't just, I can't pay rent on a place I'm not in for a year and a half. I, that makes no sense, especially in LA. I mean, rents are insane. And, but that means then Carl has to come with me on the road. Being on the road is no fun. Um, when you're young and have no, no stuff, it's fine. But when you've like accumulated a lifetime of stuff, like where do I put all my books? You know, <laughs> like I guess I was, I was literally at a chart of what it was going to cost me to store everything. Like, does it, does it make sense to, and then like, oh, well maybe I should just establish residence in New Hampshire where my parents are. And then I at least don't have to pay state income tax and just put everything in storage there. But then it means moving twice. So, um, you know, adulting is hard. Yeah, and the balance of that is hard. And but you don't, does it, I guess a year and a half, the tour makes it hard to stay engaged in things because I'm like, because yeah. you can do the TV. Well, you saw, I mean, not really. You, you, unless you're shooting on a Monday, you can't. No, you can't. You can't step out to do it. I was thinking if you're on a long run of a TV show, that's different. That, that allows room for other things. 
Yeah, like you would have in your contract, like, oh, I can do three guest spots. But, but you know, on the one hand, I don't want someone else doing my part. I want to, I want to do it every night. I don't want to, I don't, I, I want, if I'm going to do the show, I want to do the show. And then I also feel like you get into this mindset of like, you're chasing some dragon of like, oh, if I could just book a TV show while I'm doing this. Like, you got to be committed to the job you're doing. So many people will take a tour because they'll think, oh, well, they're, we're going to sit down for three months in LA and I can get some ins on TV. And it's like, you can't do TV while you're doing the show. What do you mean you're going to get ins on TV? You don't have an out to do an episode. So how are you going to do that? That's a, just a pipe dream. Or you think, oh, people are going to come see the show. They're going to see me in it. And they're, they're going to offer me all sorts of TV work. And I'm like, that happens so rarely. So rarely. You just got to do the show because you want to do the show. Yeah, and I think that's the, that's good. But when it was funny because I think about the balancing. I think the thing that you talked about about strategically what job to take, when to take it, keep the variety going, is probably the healthiest way to keep a diverse yeah. career building. Yeah. But I would hope, as somebody who directs, that anybody who takes the job wants that job. <laughs> that's not not like to get something else. Like there's that saying, you know, like be here now. Like just commit to being in this room, doing this play right now, not thinking this is a stepping stone to something else. Because not only does everyone in the room know that, but everyone in the audience knows that too. They can sense when you're not really present. They can sense when you're like going cross-eyed from watching your own performance, like, you know, to see if it's gonna get you on TV. It just, it, it seems a pipe dream to me. If you wanna do TV, focus on doing TV. Yeah, there are, good. And, now that you've been doing it, Mike, it's so funny because that shot out of the cannon from ART is so clear. But one of the questions I have, and you talked about maybe your range being thinking about your wheelhouse being different now, is what do you think you carry with you today that you didn't carry with you when you started? That's an interesting question. Um, I have a stronger sense of what I want to do and what I don't want to do and what kind of um, challenges I'm willing to take on and what kind of challenges I'm not willing to take on. Like what I, I have a greater sense of that's not a story I'm interested in telling, or that's not a, that's not a story that I think the world needs. Like I am less, um, I mean, I never really wanted to play victims. Um, I, I always wanted to sort of play kind of people who fought back, fought hard. I, I, I've done my share of horror films, don't, I, but I don't want to do gore. I don't want to do, um, like I, being in a thriller is different than being in something. Like I, I, would, I don't want to do a, you know, human centipede. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and I, uh, I think I have just a, I have a greater sense of, um, well, maybe I think I've always had that, but just a greater sense of my own personal dignity and what I'm willing to have recorded forever for posterity and for what my name attached to. It's interesting. It's actually when we started talking, just that idea, even of when you talked about doing a cabaret now that's on video, you know that it's going to be captured and it's going yes. to last. And if you're aware of your work is going to last, you're, it's different. I, I tell people like, yeah, I'll, I'll show up in your living room to hear your play read anything, mm -hmm. first draft, to be mm -hmm. supportive. But if I'm going to work on it, I got to care. And I yeah. got to want to do it. Yes, yes. And and I just, I, I feel like, you know, I I actually envy some of the younger people, you know, the, the 
like kids in their twenties, they're so used to being like going live on Instagram, going live on Facebook, like talking about everything live all the time. And kids like singing and you know, like they got the phone out and they're like, la la la. You know, and, I, and I'm like, God, I just don't want anything recorded that I don't have some sort of creative control over. And that is, um, so I envy the freedom that people have of not feeling the weight of something. But I also have a body of work that I need to protect and that I'm not going to put myself out there and feel like the product is not up to my standards. So that's, that's hard. That's, that's, I'm very demanding of my own work. Yeah. But it's interesting because when you say the stories you tell, it's also, I immediately went to shameless and I went to how I learned to drive right on the surface. If somebody said, here's what that play is about. Here's what that TV show is about. First thought is like, uh, do I want to talk about molestation? Do I want to talk about that? You know, and but you have to look at the quality of the piece too. You can't you dismiss it out of hand. Yeah, how I learned to drive. I remember when I read it, I was like, whoa, whoa, and then I thought, oh, this is so good. It's so, and the way he was directing it was so. Um, oh, it just had such a delicate touch. You know, it, it, it was. I think that's why it moved so many people. The, the touch was so delicate, and uh, with Shameless. That shameless actually, I would get the scripts and I'd be like, oh, please God, please God, let me not be, you know, <laughs> in an alley doing something horrible. But I also had, I don't have to, if I got a script and it had something that I didn't want to do, I didn't have to do it because I was not a series regular. So I was not contracted to them. Like I was just a, a guest star on that, a recurring guest star. So if, if they had, if they had written something that I was uncomfortable doing, I would just would have said, no, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm absolutely no way would I do a scene I wasn't comfortable with. I'm going to ask about that. Who did you say that to? I would say that to my agent. And, let and, them then, they, and then they do, then they do the conversation for you. This is a good, uh, back to the topic of the podcast. Um, a good right. sort of mechanism for actors is to not take on the things that don't, that don't belong to you. You know, that don't uh, matter, that don't affect you. It's very, very easy to, get caught up in drama about stuff that has nothing to do with you. And so um, this pandemic is, a, is like a, an experience of learning that on a, on a larger scale. About, you know, you don't, you don't have to worry about uh, what the marketing team is doing. You don't have to worry about what they're saying about you on all that chat. You don't have to worry about, you know, what's happening front of house. You don't, you just, just do, well, it's, I mean, it's Bill Belichick. It's do your job, you know? <laughs> Just do your job. Like there's a there's a great clip I love of him, uh, sort of in the huddle where he's he's talking about you know we've practiced this we've done this just do your job. If you do your job and everyone who has their job, if these you just do your job, you block your guy, and then we'll get through. You know like and that to me is how I've as I've grown up really focused on my career. I just need to do my job. I don't need to worry about everybody else's job. I just need to do my job and do it to the very best of my ability. Yeah, I think it's funny. That's one of the only question I was going to ask because you already covered it with money was about uh, just advice. And I'm when I will ask that, but I think that's great advice because when you you can't control other things, and the second you want to control other things, you're not doing your job. Yeah, yeah. I told a story the other day to. Um, uh, a class of Shakespeare students where I was, I was talking about when I was in Into the Woods, we were out of town. We were in, um, I can't remember how I told you the story before. We were in LA, we were at the Amundsen 
we were still in previews and um and james Pine would would say uh we'd have a list of notes that you could do that night and then we have a list of notes that we would have to rehearse before we did so like we'll tackle this tomorrow in rehearsal but put this in tonight so little cuts would go in that night you know things like that so he i can't remember exactly what the change was i think i think what he did was he wanted to change the prince's exit before um moments in the woods and i had done the whole song the prince is this way the the, the baker is that way all of my choreography was like if I go there, I have this. If I go there, I have this. And he was changing where he was exiting, which meant everything would have to change. And I and I didn't and I needed to put it in my body. I needed to actually practice it in my body. And I had all I was I was getting dressed, so I had like when do I put on the coat? When do I when do I pull the laces on the on the um? And everything was time to music too, right? You're trying to like emphasize a a beat on pulling the 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 corset string on that and getting the sleeve on it grabbing the, the scar, there was just a lot of stuff. So I said, oh, please, 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 please don't do that tonight. I can't, I can't, I have to rehearse that. And then that night, Greg Edelman walked off the opposite direction. And I, and I just, I just watched him. And I was just like, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? Okay, so I just, and I'm, and I'm like, and I literally, I think I was like, what? was that greatest <laughs> <laughs> line reading you've ever heard of, of, of the Baker's wife. Okay. So then I'm starting, I'm starting I'm, 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 and I'm, I'm really trying to work on the fly, work on the fly. Well, somehow, and I'm in a rage because I'm like, why did you do that? I asked you not to do that. I specifically said, don't do that. Like, please don't do that. And James had said, yes, okay, we'll do that tomorrow. We're not going to do that. So I, uh, oh my God. So somehow I got off track in the song. I was suddenly, I don't even remember what happened, but I was like in this, suddenly doing the second verse words in the first verse. The words are wrong. They don't go. The verses there, it's not like a simple A-A-B-A song, right? So it's not going together. And I'm feeling it coming apart. And I'm like, what's happening? What is happening? So then there's these railroad tracks in the score. And I, and I, and I stop. And I have a moment and I'm just standing there and I'm looking out at the Amundsen and thinking, oh my God, that's like 1,500 people. I have no idea what's next. I just, I have no idea. I'm all alone. I'm all alone. <laughs> this is all going to be like, literally, there's, there's no one to save me. And then, because usually, you know, when you go up on your lines, you look at the other person like, oh, I'm up, I'm up, I'm up, right? So there's nobody. And then I realized, no, Paul. And I looked down at Paul Gimignani, the conductor. He is looking at me like, what are you doing? <laughs> okay, he has this face. He has this face that it's like, I have no idea what you're doing. Okay, so I, um, he mouths something and I can't figure out what he's mouthing. And I, and I sort of looked at him like, what? And he mouths it again. And then I, and I literally have this moment of saying, just trust Paul, trust Paul. <laughs> so I, I say, it's these woods, right? And we're back in. Okay, so, and then, and then, and then my body remembered everything. And then I left the, I left the, um, I exited after the song. I, 
and, and Greg Edelman was in the wings going, oh my God, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. <laughs> okay. So, and what was funny is a friend, a friend had actually been at the show that night and said, and knew the song, so knew something had gone wrong, but didn't, but said that the person they were with said, oh my God, that moment when she was like, I don't know what to do. I don't, I don't know. Like, it was such a profound moment for the baker's wife. So anyway, that's a very, very long story. <laughs> the, the, the point of my story is that I was in a rage and you cannot create from rage and that it, it, it shut everything down. My brain stopped working. I was clenched. I was, in a, I was in a state of just being completely clenched and that we cannot create when we are clenched. We create when we are open. It's, it's interesting, you know, just it's funny. I wanted to say this thing. I mean, we were talking and I don't, uh, before the pod, I'll say about my health issue. And it was funny. One of the things that had to happen is I had to relax. Yeah. Uh, and I thought... And it's funny to be 50 and think this because when I was in college, I knew that my passion drove me, yeah. you know, and that fight drove me. And then, but most of my passion now, that tension now was fear-based or control-based or something, you know, and had to let go of it. And it's, it's so much interesting. It's interesting to watch, like, it did not affect my work in the sense of my work stayed just as good as it ever was. Mm. And I wasn't any more upset. I was less obsessed. Mm. Like, I think, you know, like I used to think like, oh, I have to stay up. I have to really solve this. I have to figure this out. I have to do. I'm like, no, I can work and work easier. I'm still yeah. working just as thoroughly. My teacher in, in grad school used to say, don't work hard, work well. Yeah. You know? And I can feel that I not feel the difference. I, I don't want to say I wasn't working well before, but I was working well and hard. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and letting go of that is, uh, you know, it's interesting because I, you know, you have to. And I've been lucky to have like older actors really offer good, strong, kind advice when I was younger to say, and I remember um, one actor asking me about my warm up and, and saying, you don't, you don't need to warm up that much. Like you're, you're, you're <laughs> and I was like, no, no, I was just out of grad school. So it's like, no, no, this is what uh, this is my teacher said. This is what we get to do. We got to do this. And I got to do a full physical warm up. you know, like, you know, when you see people on stage, you know, half hour and they're doing, going through their warm up, And, and I, and I just, I had, I had to learn to trust myself and knowing my own instrument, but I didn't then, but I, I've been very, very lucky to have, older actors along the way who I learned from either because they actually took me aside and say, Hey, let me tell you something, try this, you know, or I just watched and learned by example. Yeah. And it's, I think the by example is, is watching how other people work, people you respect, how do they go about it? Yeah. And, and uh, I've been in shows with some leading ladies who have, just established a warm, loving, kind, generous room from the get-go, you know, and everybody feels appreciated and everybody feels like, like the leader is really important. So when you're the leader, you have to take on that mantle and take it seriously and, and really lead the room. Because if you're, oh boy, like, especially on TV, if the number one is a jerk, the whole company is going to be unhappy. And, uh, and so I just always want to be the person who is not, I, I just, I don't want anybody to be 
having a hard day because of me, you know? That's part of that do your job thing, you know? I just feel like uh, everybody's just trying to do their job. If I do my job well, everybody else can do their job well. No one is ever waiting for me. No one is ever uh, worried about me knowing my lines. Nobody's worried about me uh, with continuity. All the things that are in my control. She's great. Thank you, Carrie. Thank you for the conversation. You know, I stopped recording right right at that part. And right after that, I asked her, because she is an avid Tom Brady fan, and I asked her if she was going to be able to root for him. And, you know, got a very, we actually had a very great, great conversation about her concern for Gronk coming back and not wanting him to get hurt and hoping that he's okay. And of course, she will root for Tom Brady as long as he's not playing against the Patriots and his win doesn't impact them and the Patriots in any way. And uh, it was a very thoughtful, committed, thorough conversation about, you know, just the love of sports and what we, and and the relationships that are built through that. And I, I liked, I liked it a lot. I liked when she brought up Bill Belichick and the do your job. And I think it's true. I think it's also one of the things learning that she talked about her focus of like, what's your job? If everybody does their job, we'll be okay. And, and, you know, I think about that. I think it's really interesting at this time to think about what is our job and, you know, and our, our, our job is to remain active and open and not to put, I want to say like also we're in a pandemic, don't put pressure on yourself, you know, try to figure out what you can do to move forward. And I'm saying this next one for me, you know, and I take the pressure off that you have to be the one to reinvent the wheel. If you find something that's great, you know, John Krasinski's doing uh, some good news and I think that show is brilliant and he found a way into doing what he does that really resonated with people. And that's, that's great. And I think in the meantime, you know, but not all of us are going to find some innovative thing that's perfect for the moment. And I think what we need to do is be true to ourselves, keep creating in ways that are satisfying to you and staying engaged. And I think that's our job at the moment. And the other thing Carrie said, we said so many things that I loved is to, the idea of advice from older actors and I've more experienced artists. And that's pretty much the foundation of the farm is trying to connect early career artists with people who can share their experience like, like Carrie did with us today. My neck, you know, my other thing to think about is during this pandemic that we've never been through and we're thinking of new ways to reach people is to remain open to the early career artists, the people who have a different relationship with technology than we do, who are uh, more open to and more familiar with sharing themselves and figuring out ways of getting that information out and who, you know, how they can reach different people. And I I think that's a real opportunity for us to be engaged in conversation with one another, different generations about what's next and how to do it. And something else we talked about is inclusion of not just generationally, but, you know, culturally and uh, everything to, to really learn from each other and remain open because what was is not at this moment and it will be, you know, available to us some point again. But I think there's a lot to learn right now and, uh, and a lot to remain open to as, as uh, you know, as we learn from people with more experience in a way, <laughs> I also want to say, let's take time to learn from the people who can see it differently than we can. So that might be a note for myself on that. But really grateful for Carrie. Thank you for the conversation. In the middle of it, we had to do two phone calls. I'm not sure if that was clear because she went off, she had a board meeting in the middle of our interview. And I I just love how engaged she is on all levels and takes it very seriously. And I really appreciated her making the time for that conversation and that she's engaged in other organizations and 
you know, I appreciate uh, everybody here who's listening, and I know that you're connected to other organizations and you're doing different things. And I hope the talk, uh, I hope the the conversation's useful and entertaining. And if it is either of those things, hope you'll share it with people. Hope you'll give us a five star rating on iTunes. That helps, and you know, let people know about it because that's why we're doing it. And I hope everybody's healthy, doing well, doing all you can to take care of yourself. And with that, we're out. Bye.